The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missiodei.org. Today we're beginning a brand new series um, that in a lot of ways is awkward uh, for people to talk about in general. Uh, gets even more awkward when the church starts talking about it. And so I knew uh, in starting this series that we would have some first-time guests. And so I, I just wanna calm uh, everything and talk about it. Today we're starting a series called In Blank We Trust. It's really a, a four-week series on money, um, but it's not really uh, let's try to get your money from you. It's let's dig into our hearts and our souls and really examine how do we understand money? How do we use money? What are our affections towards it? What are our allegiances toward it? And really discover how it controls and damages our life from time to time. Um, But really look at some biblical principles in Luke chapter number 18. And so I just wanna settle uh, our hearts and calm our souls and our heads a little bit because I know that today uh, the topic we're gonna discuss can have emotions from uh, a bunch of different angles. And so I don't want that. I want you to hear uh, the truth of God's word today. In fact, in 2014, Reuters, which is a, a news organization that really has more of an online platform than a printed platform nowadays, just like the rest of them, based out of London, England, called money the last taboo. All right, so the last taboo. In our progressive culture, as, as things become more progressive and people begin being okay with more and more things and uh, more uh, vulnerable to talk about a lot of things, money seems to be the one that is held on to that people don't talk about it. Nobody wants uh, somebody else to know how much they make. Nobody wants somebody else to know uh, how they invest it, how they use it, all those things. It's really become, as Reuters Magazine talks about it, the last taboo that still exists, right? We're pretty open uh, to discuss most every other aspect of our life, but we hold on to money. Money has interesting effects on us. In some ways, it reveals what we dream and it makes our dreams possible. We can give our kids a better life than we had. We can buy the homes uh, that we've dreamed and imagined. We can uh, have the weddings that we've always hoped for as little girls and, and as guys, we can grow up and buy either the big truck that we wanted or all the guns or whatever it is that we get excited about. Uh, me doesn't get really excited about those, except for the truck one. I, I've had my eyes on a truck for a really long time, it's not super practical for the lifestyle that we have necessarily. And like, I live in a suburban neighborhood. And so it's like, I'd like to have one, but I've got so many friends that have them. I don't necessarily need it right now. And so I've been exercising restraint and God's been teaching me things about my heart and my soul by not going out. Tiffany even gave me the okay to buy one, uh, but I just haven't pursued it. So uh, sidebar, but it reveals our dreams. It, 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 it also reveals our nightmares, Money can keep us up, up at night, worried about are we gonna have the uh, funds to pay the bills at the end of the month, worried are we going to be able to provide all the same things, asking questions like can we really afford to bring this other child into our home or into our lives? Can we afford to do this? And we, we stay awake at night and we stress about it. And so sometimes money reveals our dreams and gives us hope for the future. Sometimes money reveals our nightmares and gives us Uh, despair for today. And so I I get that in this room, 
all of those people are represented. And, and, and some of us, those seasons of our life happened at different times of our life, right? When things are really good and the, the bank account is really strong, like, man, our dreams are coming true. But when it's not, like our worst nightmares are coming true. And so we've, we've all probably lived in uh, either one of those realities or at different seasons in our life, both of them. But it also causes us to look at other people differently. It's not always about our dreams and our nightmares and things that stress us out. We look at other people and we cast judgment on them. And we identify them based on their money. We use words like they're, well, they're just, you know, they're poor or, or, or they're rich. And some people, it's, it's the opposite. Like they've got too much money or they don't have enough money. Or if I had the money that they had, here's what I would do with it. And here's what they should do with their money. And we get really judgmental about uh, the money that other people have or don't have. Money also becomes very divisive. It divides relationships because it gives tangible, physical expression to sinfulness that really flows from our hearts. Sinfulness like greed, envy, selfish ambition. It begins to reveal things about us that maybe we wouldn't have known had we have not had the money that we had or had, or had the money we had, depending on what part of the spectrum we're coming from. And so no wonder Reuters Magazine is calling it the last taboo because really uh, it's, it's something that we don't enjoy talking about a whole lot. It's not something that we enjoy being talked to about that a whole lot. And so I understand that. I understand there's an element of discomfort uh, in the church setting for digging in and, and examining some things of our heart. I, I know because of my prep work for this series and even this week that there were things that I had to look at in my heart and soul that I was not prepared to look at and it challenged me. And my prayer for you has been this week that the grace of God would be overwhelming and you would see Jesus as the only thing that can change our heart and change our minds and change the, 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 the amount of control and power and influence that money and possessions and things have in our life. And so that's, that's been my prayer this week. Few things exposes the souls of human beings like the way that we use and understand money. It's that powerful. So powerful, in fact, Jesus talks about money inside of the four gospels uh, more than heaven and hell combined. And so even more than uh, eternity uh, and the destinations that have been prepared for eternity, Jesus talks about money that much. He also talks about it in 39% uh, of his parables. So nearly almost half of the time he's talking in parables, which are really lessons that have life application that he uses to teach people deep principles. 39% of them, Jesus is talking about the topic of money. And so it has deep heart effects. Matthew chapter number six tells us that where our treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so he's telling us that where we spend our money, how we view our money, how we use our money is really a microscope, microscope, whatever a microscope is, a microscope to dig down deep into our heart and deep into our soul and deep into our mind to reveal things that we may or may not have known were there. And so money becomes that. And we're gonna look at several ways that money reveals things to us this morning. We'll start in Luke chapter number 18, verse 18 through 30. We're really gonna dig into that text and remain in that text all 
day to day. Some of the other weeks, we'll examine some other portions of the scripture and portions of the gospel that kind of elaborate on some of the principles taught here. But over the next four weeks, including this week, so this week and the next three Sundays, we're gonna take a look at Luke chapter number 18, verse number 18 through 30. Today, we'll do a high view uh, uh, like examination of the entirety of the text. And then the next three weeks, we'll take smaller portions of the text and really unpack the implications of uh, what Jesus is saying to this guy who the Bible calls the rich young ruler, all right? And so we'll look in this text every single week and we'll take different implications every week. And so next week, we're gonna talk about earning and vocation and what, what should our heart posture be towards earning money. And how, what kind of amount of money should we seek to earn? And I think I'm gonna surprise some people because typically the church can take a bent towards the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel. And there's people that say, the more money you have, the more blessed you are. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I also don't think the less money you have, the more faithful to Jesus you are either. And so we're gonna talk about the rightful ways that we should seek to make as much money as we can in good, healthy ways that aren't sinful, that aren't selfish, that aren't motivated by uh, sinful desires, and then use that money to bless other people. And so uh, I think that'll be surprising. So I encourage you to come back as we look through some more of the implications of this text next week. But let's dig in this week. We'll read chapter number 18 in Luke, and we'll read verse 18 through 30, and then we'll seek to make some sense of what's happening here. And this is right off the heels uh, just moments before this, Jesus is talking to uh, his disciples and a group of children come and are, are trying to get his attention. And we know through Jesus's ministry, he spent specific, uh, he gave specific care and love and affection towards children. And, and so in, in this chaos and frenzy that was the ministry of Jesus, these kids were coming and approaching him and the disciples were causing them to stop and telling them, hey, kind of, he's kind of too busy really for you to stop and spend time with. And so they were rebuking the kids and Jesus stops. And in verse 17, just prior to this, he's rebuking the disciples for, for hindering the children to come to him. And he says this, he said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then on the heels of that is this rich young ruler talk. And he had overheard that conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples in this crowd of people. And something about what he said about children, uh, you cannot inherit the kingdom unless you inherit it like a child, sparked his interest. And so this rich young ruler has another question to kind of ask Jesus to clarify what he had just heard Jesus tell his disciples about these children. So let's pick up in verse 18. The Bible says this. It says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, 
then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. And so we see here uh, in this text that um, this ruler is coming and talking to Jesus, right? He says in verse 18, we see it kick off with that. And he's talking about the ruler who sincerely asked Jesus a question. He had just overheard Jesus said, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom as a child cannot enter it. And so the, the rich young ruler has a question. He says, then, then what is it that I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so he asks sincerely, and we see that it's a sincere ask because of Jesus' response. We've had people ask Jesus this exact same question. One that comes to mind is the lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's asking a question, seeking to self-justify himself for loving his neighbor, and Jesus doesn't respond to that uh, self-motivated seeking with tender care and attention like he does here in our text this morning. And so he asks sincerely, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus' response really indicates that this was a legitimate worry that this man had. He had worried about this. He had thought about that. He overheard Jesus saying something that, that caused something to be questioned inside of his heart and in his soul. And this, is my, this, this isn't my favorite part of the story, but this is like my, my sub-favorite part of the story is Jesus' uh, ability as a just a supreme conversationalist to take a question and like navigate, knowing the next four or five steps, knowing the desires of this man's heart, knowing why he's asking the question and knowing what's keeping and hindering him. He like, like a master a craftsman or, a, or an artist paints this beautiful picture conversationally and as somebody who likes to talk and gets paid to talk and is energized by being in a room with people that are talking, like that fact about Jesus jacks me up. I love it. And so like, a, like an ultimate conversationalist, he, he weaves this conversation much like we would approach a game of chess, uh, seeing the end goal first and then working our uh, steps accordingly. And so we'll see this unfold as we begin working through this text. Verse 19 through 20, we see Jesus responding with a question of his own, which is the ultimate uh, goal in a conversation is when you're posed with a question, ask a question so that you don't have to be the bad guy to unearth all the things that uh, you really wanna say. And so I try to incorporate that into my conversations, especially difficult conversations as much as possible. And before he answers his question, so he asks a question, then he answers the question. The question that he asks is, why do you call me good? Then he follows it up with a phrase, no one is good but God. And so we see that in Jesus asking this question, he was leading the ruler to understand that what he was perceiving as good was ultimately insufficient. He had viewed himself as good, and if he could call Jesus good and kind of work the angle to get him on his side, then he felt like maybe he would get uh, what he wanted. And Jesus answers the question that he asked. He says, you know the commandments. 
But Jesus lists only the commandments that relate to the way that we interact with one another, if we notice. There's 10 commandments, several of them talk about our affection and our relationship to God, and the rest of them talk about our affection and relationship with one another. And Jesus really responds with, you, you know the commandments, and he lists out all the commandments that have to do with the way that you and I, or people, interact with each other, but leaves out the commandments about how we interact with God. And it's targeted and it's pointed. And Jesus knew that if the ruler would search his soul, even about these things, he would see that he was totally unqualified for the kingdom that he was seeking. Because as we, as we see Jesus begin to ask more questions and dig in and make more profound statements, we begin to see the reality that uh, this rich young ruler who thought he was keeping all these commandments wasn't actually keeping these commandments at all. And so we, we'll see that play out and unfold. In verse 21 of this text, we see the ruler's response. He says, I have kept these from all of my youth. And what this really does is reveal uh, that he was kind of missing the point. Right? Jesus was asking specific questions to get a specific response and, and, and the ruler is kind of missing the point, you see, because the ruler's problem was his love and trust of material possessions and Jesus, as a targeted conversationalist, was going right after the heart of the matter like Jesus typically does. He goes after our hearts. He's not as worried about our actions because he knows that our heart is where our actions flow from. And so he could change our behavior, but without changing our heart, tomorrow we would just have the same behavior, right? And so he's trying to get this rich young ruler to understand this. Verse 22, Jesus kind of just throws uh, what seems to be a bit of a, a Hail Mary toss up into the air and he tells the man to sell all of his possessions give to the poor and follow him, which is interesting to me. But even more interesting in verse 23 is uh, the fact that even scripture records this made the ruler very sad. Made the ruler very sad because he had so many possessions. And so we see in this story in a way that we can personally apply to our life and what we'll begin to understand is that money reveals what we worship. How we use and how we understand our money really begins to reveal what it is that we worship and also that which our heart trust. That which our heart trust. The way we use our money reveals not only what is important to us, but it also becomes a source, a place, a tangible something where we find our identity. It's what we use to feel personally significant, socially, socially connected, and oftentimes emotionally secure. We put a lot of trust in our money. Some of us are like brushing this off right, right real quick. It's like, we, we don't really care that much about money. We don't really worship money. And we may not worship money, the actual dollar bill that comes out from our wallet or the actual amount that's in our bank account. And it may not be that physical thing that we're worshiping necessarily, but we all do inevitably worship with our money. What we spend our money on, what we don't spend our money reveals things about our heart that are deeply tied and connected to the things that we treasure the most. And for all of us, in some way or another, 
that what we value the most obviously becomes money or something tied to what we can obtain with our money, whether it's physical, houses and cars and good meals or spiritual or something less tangible, power, control, authority, popularity, we begin to worship those types of things. Money also, as we see in the ruler's response out of verse 23, money also reveals our sinfulness and selfishness, right? He, he was very quick to throw out, I've kept all those commandments. But missing the point of what Jesus was trying to get him to understand, knowing that even in his declaration of keeping his commandments, he had done so imperfectly. Because Jesus said you would uh, sell your money and give to the poor. He was not super excited and very hesitant about doing that. His materialism revealed that he loved his things more than he loved his God. And also that he didn't love his neighbor near as much as he thought he did. And therefore he hadn't kept the law because he hadn't loved God perfectly. He hadn't loved his neighbor perfectly. I think all of us find ourselves in that situation, whether we've got lots of money and we're considered wealthy or we've got very little money and we're considered wealthy. Sinfulness and selfishness is always revealed in how we use and understand our money. The ruler was worried about eternal life, but we also see he was worried about his, his wealth. When questioned by Jesus, we understand that he valued his wealth more than he valued eternal life and the kingdom of God. And so he was worried about both eternal life because he did ask the question in a sincere posture, but he was also hesitant to give up his money. And so he's worried both about eternal life and worried both about his wealth. And we see that money, how we understand and how we use our money reveals our worries. And worries reveal what we value. And what we value is revealed in how we use and understand our money. And so I want us to, to really pause this week as we begin this series and really dig into the hearts and souls and uh, our posture towards money to see just what it is that we value, to see what it is that we are trusting in, to see what it is that we are putting our security in. It isn't surprising with, with all the things that we've discussed so far that money is often addressed in the Bible. And when it's addressed, it's usually addressed alongside of our fears and alongside of our worries, right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, take no thought what you should eat and what you should drink. What was he saying? Don't worry about what you should eat or what you should drink because I am a good father and I will take care of your needs. Don't stress out too much about what's happening right now or in the future. But there's also good biblical principles as we'll work through in this text that tells us to use our money for a purpose and use our money to set ourselves up, to free up our time, to spend more time doing things that are more important. And so there's a balance. I don't want you to hear that money and investing money and holding on to money is sinful. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Just like giving all your money away can be sinful, but it doesn't have to be, all right? And so we wanna see and understand that balance. There's principles that tell you to invest and there's principles that tell you to grow your, your wealth for the security of your family. But if that's ultimately what we're residing in, this is what Jesus is getting at the heart of with this ruler. Because whether or not his money abounds, he still could be secure 
in his relationship with Jesus. And I hope that at the end of the four weeks, we all carry that posture towards us, that if, if everything was taken away from us, we'd still be confident that Jesus was in control of everything. and He was gonna meet our needs. So how do we understand money? How do you understand money? I've got some questions just to consider, and we won't dig in super, super deep, but I want you to begin understanding what it's like and what you actually understand and value about your money and what your actions tell you about how you understand and value and use your money. First question is this, does your wealth make you feel personally significant, socially connected, and emotionally secure? Your wealth, and so that could mean like you're wealthy and you have a lot of wealth. That also could be you're purposely poor and you don't wanna have a lot of wealth. So don't misunderstand the question and say, I don't have a whole lot of money, so that doesn't matter to me because we can feel as emotionally secure and personally significant by having no money at all just the same as the person can hoard their money. And so we can hate money and we can hoard our money. And so let's understand it that we can come from that perspective. Ask this question, and I've heard it talked about a lot, and I've said it myself, but is there an amount of money that you would make you feel satisfied and secure? Like if I had this number in my bank account right now, all my stress would be, away. I wouldn't be anxious about life. I wouldn't be worried about my bills being paid, right? And I know I know, most of us have had that thought or had that conversation because I've had it with some of you and I've had it with uh, lots of other people. Like there's a, a number in the back of our head and I've got, we've got savings goals. And when I listed out my goals with the staff at the church this year, there was, some fi- there was a financial section. We wanna save this amount of money. We wanna give this amount of money to church planning. Those aren't terrible things, but when we far- start finding our security in those things, they become sinful things. And so I wanna challenge that. Like there is no amount of money that's gonna make you as satisfied and secure because only Jesus can satisfy and only Jesus is our security. Another question, has acquiring money in any form ever been a source of sin in your life? Let me clarify that, right? Let me put some some legs behind that. Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you manipulated or have you used people to acquire money? At work, on your taxes, right? Those are sins of omission, like sins that we do tangibly, but what about sins of commission? Have we ever forsaken other kingdom commandments that we know to be true, that we know to be life-giving, that we know to be right, to, to instead pursue more money? So do we take extra hours when we don't need to, when we knew that it would cause us to miss church or community, right? Or would cause us not to have any time to engage our neighbors with gospel conversation because I'm working 100 hours a week right? And you're talking, you're looking at and talking to one of the world's worst overworkers. My overwork has in the past caused a lot of relational tension between my wife and other family members. If I had it my way, 
and I didn't have other responsibilities and I wasn't a sinful human being that God was trying to chip away at my heart, I'd probably work 100, 150 hours a week. There's not 150 hours a week, but I'd work every waking minute, right? Because I enjoy it, right? And so, so asking ourselves some of these tough questions, but not only understanding money, how do you use your money? Is the kingdom of God a priority in your use of money, right? I'm not after your money, but how you spend your money reveals more about you than almost anything. It reveals what you value, it reveals what you worship. And so asking these questions is a good way to dig into our heart and our soul to understand how we use and how we understand money. Is the kingdom of God a priority in your use of money? Do you give? Do you give? We'll talk a little bit more about this as the, the time unfolds, not so that the church receives more of your money, but that your heart is contuned and conditioned and drawn to dependence on Jesus as the ruler of his kingdom and not building your own kingdom by rejecting the truths of God's work that are meant to free our souls from sin, right? Do you give? Some of us give, but are you tithing? Does 10% of your income come into the storehouse of the church to be distributed for the advancement of the kingdom, to be distributed for the needs of the local congregation and for the advancement of the gospel around the world? Like nobody likes this discussion. I don't like having it. I, and people that know me, I'm not a person that seeks out confrontation. I'm not afraid of it, but I don't walk up and look for it. Like I like to be the teddy bear, gentle kind of guy that everybody loves and wants to respond well to. Like, Straight up, this is awkward conversation. But it's good things to consider in our hearts. How do you practice generosity and mercy ministry towards those less fortunate than you are with your money? So this even extends beyond the church. Like how generous are you with your life and your time and your possessions? Are you free to give them up for the betterment of another person or are you always the kind of person that hoards and hoards and hoards for the betterment of yourself or the betterment of your family? See, some of us, I, and what I, what I hate about digging into this topic, even in my own heart, is I, I start to see areas where I value the kingdom of God and I sort of trust Jesus, but I also see areas where I don't maybe value the kingdom of God as much as I say I do. And I also see areas where maybe my trust in Jesus isn't nearly as great as, a, as I once thought it was, right? See, because when everything is going well, the bank account is flourishing, what I understand in my life is in those moments I trust him. Right, I give, I give freely, I tithe. Man, a lot of times I even, maybe I don't just give 10%, I give 15 or 20% because the, the storehouse is full, my, my needs are taken care of and there's an abundance of money going around. But then at different times of my life, when, the, when things aren't going near as well and maybe the bank account is more deflated than what I would like, I begin looking to other avenues for my dependence, for my trust. I start looking at myself, how could I make more money? What can I give up to acquire more because the money's low and things are tough and things are starting to get challenging. In those moments, who is it that we really trust? 
How is fear and worry revealing that in those moments, our faith is actually pretty small and pretty weak? Man, it's really beaten me up and I've kind of grown throughout this last few weeks to understand that we trust God for some things. All of us do, whether we're believers or not believers, we trust God for some things. There's some things that we don't trust God for. And a lot of us have learned to, uh, uh, as money is revealing these things in our life, we understand that money reveals that we trust God for heaven as believers, we put our eternal security in there. After this life is over, we wanna know that we are secure because of the finished work of Jesus and we trust God for heaven, but oftentimes we find it very difficult to trust him for earth, our tangibles, our day-to-days, right? And so we, we look to ourselves, we look to other things to fuel and motivate us. Tiffany and I uh, have experienced uh, seasons of of prosperity, and we've really endured some difficult seasons. And so I, uh, prior to working in the ministry and making my living through the church and and endeavoring in uh, church planting, um, I was uh, an electrician. And so part of that electrician becoming an electrician, because Tim cautioned me on saying electrician because it's like, oh, electricians make really good money, so people aren't really gonna uh, hear the, the heart of what you're saying. But throughout, that was an apprenticeship where I made a small portion of what an actual journeyman electrician would make. And so during that time, even when I was working, early on in our marriage, money was extremely tight because I was making about eight or nine dollars an hour learning the trade. Right, But in those seasons where for a month or two or three or four or five months, work kind of dried up as we were seeing some difficulty in construction in Cincinnati during the time I was trying to become an, uh, an electrician, I spent some time laid off. And so wasn't making a ton of money when I was working and things were tight, but things got extremely tight when I wasn't working. Right, and there was one income, and, and she was new in her job and new in her career, and so she wasn't making uh, a ton of money either. And so there was a lot of times where decisions had to be made of whether we would pay our rent uh, at our apartment that we were renting early on in our marriage, or like we would pay our tithes to the church. Or if we, if we did this, then that means we wouldn't be able to go out and we'd really have to eat like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches sometimes. And so I'm just saying, we've been, been at those seasons of our life and in those seasons of our life, we really had to dig in and start asking ourselves questions. Is our bank accounts and our resources the thing that we are trusting and depending on or do we know that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves and he knows our situation eternally better than we know ourselves? He knows what was before this. He knows what we're in the middle of. He knows what's coming. Do we put our trust in what we can see and understand or do we put our trust in what we know to be eternally true because he's told us in his word. So there's a lot of times we gave when we didn't have the money to give where it meant that something else wasn't gonna happen if we did this. And sometimes it was good that those things didn't happen. And a lot of times God made a way and jobs came up or I had to, to re, uh, put mulch down in people's houses and do some landscaping. And if anybody knows me, and anybody who's driven by my house knows that is not at all what I like to do. But those opportunities found their way. What I'm saying, God's always faithfully, faithfully, faithfully not left us hanging. 
And so when we've done what Jesus is commanding us to do in the scriptures, he's always blessed us immensely. What I'm getting at is the heart of don't forsake kingdom things for earthly things because you can't make sense of the kingdom things and all you can make sense of right now are the earthly things, right? Does it make sense? Verse 25 goes on and we'll spend more time diving into these verses so I won't spend much time on it today. Jesus explains in verse 24 through 25 the difficulty wealth creates in trusting God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person enter the kingdom of God. What is he saying here? Is he saying this fancy, clever thing that like would, would create a lot of conversation? No, he's saying that it's impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God based on his wealth or his own merits. See, because the, the, the better we think we are sometimes, the more motivated we are to continue to try to be good to earn God's affection. The more money we have at times, the more we think we can use that money to earn things from God. And Jesus is saying here to this rich man, all the wealth in the world, all your good works in the world is absolutely meaningless when it comes to the eternal kingdom of God. And so verse 26, his disciples said, then who can be saved? Confused, man, if this good guy who has a lot of money can't inherit the kingdom of God based on these things, well, who can then inherit the kingdom of God? And this is verse 27 where it says, and this is really gonna be our fuel for uh, should we consider giving when maybe the numbers don't make sense or should we do what we're commanded to do even when it doesn't make sense? Should we forsake kingdom things for earthly things when it doesn't make sense? Verse 27, in the context of this question, then who can be saved? Jesus says, What is impossible with man is impossible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so wealthy people can enter the kingdom of God because God can arrest and change their hearts to trusting on him instead of trusting on the things that they have obtained or the things that they possess or the things that they earned. So we'll summarize this in two different statements and we'll give some brief explanation before we work on what does this mean for us practically today? Summary, the first thing we wanna say is this, money is a gift to be enjoyed. It's not a little g God to be worshiped, right? Money is a gift to be enjoyed, but it's not a God to be worshiped. It's a tremendous tool, but it's a terrible savior. And so as we look towards money for security, for social acceptance, for emotional stability, it'll always find itself lacking. We won't ultimately be satisfied by the things that we possess. Only Jesus satisfies. We worry about it. We stress out about it. It keeps us up at night. We spend our lives obtaining it. And God redeems our worry. And God redeems our fears surrounding money and it's in, in, a, in, a, in an unexplainable use of his grace, he takes those fears and those worries and he uses them to point right back to our sin, to our sinful condition. You say, well, that doesn't sound very hopeful. That doesn't sound very encouraging, but it is. He doesn't do that to make us feel bad about our insufficiency, but he does do it to reveal our desperate need for a better, more faithful, more powerful, more able, loving God who came to earth as a person who would eventually die 
named Jesus. Like if we found within ourselves stability and salvation and growth and we could earn all these things within ourselves, we would so be the type of people that would try to do it. Like I know I would. But Jesus uses our fear, our worries, whatever form and shape they mean about money to reveal to us that it is a insufficient savior that it is a fraud for a God. It'll rob our freedom and it'll extinguish our joy if that's what we're putting our trust and our hope in. And so he reveals that to us. Because if we only see our worry and our fear as emotional, we can do things to navigate that, right? We can manage it, we can mediate it, we can medicate it, we can overcome those obstacles. But this only makes us slaves to anxiety, right? Only makes us slaves to anxiety, mastered by the very things that bring us worry and fear as we try to manage, as we try to mediate, as we try to medicate our feelings without viewing them as sinful condition that needs to be dealt with by somebody who's perfect. And we know that we're not. And so we need somebody outside of ourselves to save us. And when we start to understand worry and fear as sin, we can look to Jesus and we can see our sin dealt with and forgiven on the cross. And we can see that sin overcome by Jesus's resurrection. So not only does Jesus give us victory by taking our sin on himself as our perfect substitute, overcoming it as he's put to death, but giving us hope as he rises again to eternal life, to redeem us, to save us from lots of things, but one thing, that we're specifically talking about today is worry and fear and idolatry in, in, in the way that it's tied to money. And he presents himself as a better savior, a greater savior, the only savior that can bring hope, that can bring life, that can bring renewed and changed hearts and lives. And so he is our victory. He's the only way we can overcome it. Trying to battle sin of idolatry, worry and fear regarding money is fruitless outside of turning by faith to Jesus, trusting in his death and his resurrection is our only hope for ever overcoming our greed, our envy, and our jealousy, right? Christ also gives us a great example. His greatest treasure was his desire to please God to the point of death. And then the resurrection empowers us to now trust God just as much as he did with his very life laying it down. We do not put our trust in human resources, money, possessions, material things, but in God's resources. Because we're starting to understand that belief in human resource is unbelief in God's resources and a promise for future treasure for all eternity in heaven. It's amazing, isn't it? Seeing and using and understanding money the way God sees and uses and understands and wants us to understand it is so freeing, is so life-giving, is so hope-filled. And so in practice, in response to what Jesus has done for us, let's look at just two things very quickly. First is to examine the allegiances of your hearts. This is what I've been doing all week. This is what I've been doing when I couldn't sleep at night. This is what I've been doing in the morning as I'm preparing and seeing things about my understanding and use of money that were sinful and were selfish. If we were confronted 
by Jesus in the same way that this rich young ruler was and told to sell everything we had in order to eternal inherit eternal life? What would your response be? What would your response be? Thanks be to God, Jesus didn't make that a stipulation for entrance in the eternal kingdom. His only stipulation was have faith in me and the work that I've done for you. And so you can rest from all the striving to try to earn things for yourself. That's a gracious thing. But if we were confronted with Jesus and this is what he was saying was the stipulation. You had to give everything up that you had. You had to sell everything and give to the poor and come and follow me. What would your response be? And at first thought, my response would be, yeah, absolutely, man. We've, we've moved wherever God's called us to move. We've, we've given up all kinds of time and energy and we've poured into people. We've uh, done all these great things for you. But if I'm confronted with this conversation, I, I begin like the young ruler to, to create reason and justify why my response would be a yes. But on further examination, of my heart and its allegiances towards God's kingdom and towards my own kingdom. It's been revealed that that probably isn't as true as I'd like to think it is. That my response would be yes, take everything as long as I've got you. Because we have everything. And what does it distract us from? Him, right? Things we buy with our money pulls our time away from time with him. My TV consumes way more of my life than it should when God's word doesn't consume near as much time as it should. And so I start to examine where do my allegiances lie? Where, where is my heart inclined? Where are my affections towards? Is it future security or is it living and understanding God's blessing for today? Is it throwing out the window all of the kingdom commandments that I've got to pursue financial peace or financial stability, right? And, and I think we understand, like, not all of that is fruitless, right? There's some good biblical principles to not have a ton of debt, and there's some good biblical principles to not be overwhelmed by these things, because those two can be like bondage straps that keep us contained and not free to do the work of the kingdom, but we've gotta put the pursuit of those things in perspective of the priorities that God has given those things, right? And then the next thing is this, examine the actions of our hands. I wanna challenge you, take a look at your checkbook. Register, if you're still old school and keep a checkbook, register. Most of us probably will review our bank statements. But as you do those things, Look for patterns. Look for consistency in the way that you give to the kingdom or don't give to the kingdom. Patterns for where you overspend here and you underspend here and begin asking God to reveal to your heart, what is this telling me about myself? How does how I use my money reveal the values of my heart? And really spend some time seeking Jesus out this week. I, I spent a lot of time this past week doing that uh, didn't make for as restful of a time away with Tiffany as I was hoping for, because this is real life stuff. 
And as you begin to see that your allegiances lie outside of the kingdom of God, not inside of the kingdom of God, man, that hurts. And that challenges and it's painful, but there's grace for it. It's the hard work that God is using to reveal our desperate need for him and not our deepest trust on our things that will ultimately disappoint as he's the only one that will never disappoint. And so this hard soul searching is God's grace to reveal where our allegiances lie and where things or money or possessions are what we are allegiant and affectionate towards and he's not. And the greatest life is the one submitted to the kingdom of God, trusting the king of the kingdom with all of our life. And the biggest telltale sign is how we use our money. How is what you value the most reflected in how you spend your money? I'll recap and close like this. When understood and used as a gift, money can provide for your needs, can be used to bless other people, which brings joy to your soul and can be used to the advancement of the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful thing. But when understood and worshiped as a God, money reveals that we do not trust God, that we are more dependent on our ability to make and consume money than we are dependent on Jesus to meet our needs, change our hearts, and ultimately change our lives. So what we'll do over the next few weeks is we'll spend some time each week. This was, a, this was a heart and mind assessment and examination, hopefully that brought deep conviction and deep challenge. And so now we'll put some practical steps towards how do we use and invest and give and save and function with our money in a healthy way that declares Jesus is our king and I trust in him but also is wise and uses principles that he's given us to use our money for the glory of God and for the joy of our souls and for the advancement of God's kingdom.